Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Annalene Malfleet, who is a Ph.D. researcher in the Department of Physiotherapy, Human Physiology, and Anatomy in the Faculty of Physical Education and Physiotherapy at the University of Brussels. Welcome, Annalene. Thank you. Today, she and I are going to discuss a study that she and her colleagues recently published in PTJ. It's called Blended Learning Pain Neuroscience Education for People with Chronic Spinal Pain. It's a randomized controlled multicenter trial. Annalene, I'll give a brief summary of your study, and then we'll go and talk about some questions. This is a very interesting study. The objective was to examine whether blended learning pain neuroscience education, or what they call PNE, is able to reduce disability, catastrophizing kinesiophobia, and improve illness perceptions. The study was a two-center, triple-blind, randomized controlled trial. It involved 120 adults between the ages of 18 and 65 who had nonspecific chronic neck and low back pain living in Brussels, Belgium. The intervention was three sessions of PNE, or biomedically focused back-neck school education. After receiving the three PNE sessions, Analyses indicated that the blended learning PNE intervention was successful in reducing kinesiophobia and improved illness perceptions in the participants who were in the PNE experimental group. None of the treatment groups showed a significant change in the perceived disability or reduction in pain, catastrophizing, or hypervigilance outcomes. Annalene, is that a fair summary of your study? Yes, indeed. It's really quite an interesting study. My first question has to do with the subjects. Like with many of these trials, I was struck that the age range for your subjects was 18 to 65. As a gerontologist, I'm always interested in wondering why you excluded adults over the age of 65 from your trial. Well, that's a fair question, and the most important reason to exclude adults above 65 years old is that in these adults, many comorbidities can occur, and these comorbidities, they can influence the pain symptoms, like, for example, osteoarthritis, cardiovascular disorders, frailty, and, well, things like that. So when selecting this uh, study population, we were specifically aiming to include participants that only had non-specific pain complaints, meaning that they did not have any specific cause that could explain the perceived symptoms. Well, we know that once above 65 years old, the odds of having an underlying pathology that could explain these symptoms, these odds will increase. And that's why we selected this as a cutoff for the age of people to be selected in this study. I understand. It is unfortunate 
when investigators do that, it becomes very difficult to generalize your findings to anyone older than age 65. But I understand from the point of view of a trial, it certainly has advantages to, to make the group more homogeneous. Indeed. But I do agree that it would be very interesting to also have a look at, well, subjects above 65 years old, but to maybe include it in a specific trial looking at a more, well, geriatric population, if I, if I can call it like this. So I, I indeed agree that it is very interesting to uh, look at this population as well. And certainly if you have the funds, you would be able to increase your sample size so you could look specifically at the 65 and older population to see if you had a differential impact. But I know that's difficult to get a sufficient sample. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's a good idea to remember for the future. Let me go on to a second uh, question that struck me in reading your study. It had to do with the education level of your participants, which struck me as fairly high. Did the education level of, of your subjects match the education level of the populations in your age range, or was there, in fact, a bias towards higher educated adults? When we look at the statistics in Belgium in particular, we can indeed conclude that our study population is slightly biased towards higher educated adults. Now, this bias mainly occurs because we were unable to include sufficient people with a lower secondary diploma as highest degree. Anyway, we try to avoid it because of our wide and well-thought-out recruitment strategy. We have been recruited in hospitals, also at university, through primary care, through health insurance agencies, etc. But still, it appears that even though we tried to use a very wide recruitment strategy, it appears that still our sample was not representative for the Belgian population. And it appears that for future studies, we will need to try to motivate more people with lower education levels to participate in studies. So this is definitely something that we will take as a working point for future studies. You know, it's very common in trials of this nature, so I wasn't surprised at all. The reason I asked was, given the cognitive nature of the intervention, I'm curious as to whether or not the education level was related to the impact of your PNE intervention. Well, that's a very good question. Well, especially indeed if you consider the slightly higher educated sample that we investigated. Now, specifically in this study, we did not examine the influence of the education level because we have to maintain a clear focus and a clear aim. But I agree that it would be interesting to explore this as a secondary analysis on uh, data. I ran some preliminary analysis regarding this, and it indeed appears that higher educated people are more prone to report less symptoms after pain neuroscience education. Now, it can probably be explained because in this trial, the first and the second session were not completely individually tailored. They were a group session and an online session, respectively, and this was chosen because of practical considerations. Now, if we would have delivered the first and the second pain neuroscience education as well as a one-on-one -on -one session between the therapist and the patient, it might have been easier for the patient to indicate difficulties. So in one-on-one -on -one sessions, the therapist would be allowed to explore certain topics that are experienced as demanding by the patient more deeply, and this would probably result in larger effect sizes in people with lower education levels. 
Yeah, your points are really well taken. And I'll come back to that with one of my later questions. I wasn't familiar with the intervention, PNE, and some listeners may not be. So I'm going to summarize the objectives of the intervention, and then we can talk a little bit about it. The objectives, as I understand it from reading your paper, are focused on decreasing the threat value of pain and increasing participants' knowledge of pain and helping them reconceptualize pain. Mm-hmm. And so the participants were taught that all pain is produced, constructed, and modulated by the brain, and that pain symptoms are often related to hypersensitivity of the central nervous system rather than ongoing tissue damage. So you're drawing a clear distinction between the source of pain versus tissue damage. And as I understand it, you speculated that the combination of insight into the mechanisms of pain and the value of activity would enable subjects to move their spine in a greater degree without being afraid of creating more damage. Is that a fair description? Yes, indeed. And it's a fairly cognitively focused intervention. And you did show a decrease in kinesiophobia, as you had hypothesized. But you had also hypothesized that that decrease should lead to a reduction in disability, which you did not find. Why do you think you were able to reduce kinesiophobia but not disability? I believe that the main reason for this is that the program was limited to pain neuroscience education alone. So we indeed saw that the subject showed altered perceptions, altered beliefs, indeed a decrease in kinesiophobia, but did not have a direct impact on how to deal with pain in daily life. And this was reflected in indeed the unchanged perceived disability score. So I think that these results clearly show that knowledge alone is not enough to change how people feel due to pain and how disabled they perceive themselves due to pain. I believe that the physical therapist or the physiotherapist needs to help patients to implement the knowledge of pain neuroscience education in daily life. Yet, I think we also have to take in mind that the period between the baseline assessment and the follow-up assessment was rather short, and also that the follow-up assessment was done directly after the last PNE session. So this, of course, does not give the subjects a fair amount of time to implement the knowledge in daily life. So this might also explain why we did not see any change in disability. And I think that long-term follow-up could have shown different results regarding disability. Yeah, that makes perfect sense when thinks about the disablement process. Translating changes in kinesiophobia may take time, and you would not have picked that up. Let me go on to talk a little bit about your comparison group. I was interested that you chose to give the comparison group three biomedically focused neck and back school sessions, which struck me as fairly traditional neck and back school type information. And the learning objectives focused on biomedical knowledge of neck and low back pain and the importance of self-care and ergonomic advice advice on posture and movements, lifting, and so forth. I was wondering if you thought it might be possible that the comparison group intervention was having some impact on your study outcomes and therefore reduced the effect size of your PNE intervention. When we look at the specific results, 
We only saw an impact of the control intervention on the timeline aspect of the illness perception questionnaire. So this indicates that participants that received the control intervention perceived the symptoms as less chronic. All the other outcome measures showed no change compared to baseline. Now, I believe that this can be explained because of the fact that the content of the control intervention was probably very similar to what subjects already heard from other healthcare providers. The traditional and biomedically focused neck and back school is actually something that is delivered quite oftenly in Belgium as standard care at the moment. So therefore, I think that the information given in this control intervention might not have been very new to the subject, which led to the absence of a change in these outcome measures. In essence, you were comparing the P&E intervention to standard care in Belgium. Yes, that's true. Yeah, and that makes sense because one would want to know whether or not the P&E was better than standard care. Yes, that was the study objective. In terms of your dose, you chose three sessions. What led you to choose three versus a more intense dose of P&E? Well, this was also mainly based on the Belgian healthcare system. Well, I have to maybe explain that the three sessions of education were in the main project were followed by 15 sessions of physical therapy, well, sessions. So in total, all subjects or all study participants received 18 sessions of physical therapy, which is actually the amount of sessions that a patient can claim in, uh, in Belgium per year for a specific problem. So... Taking this into account, together with the idea to have the pain neuroscience education followed by exercise therapy, we decided to create a treatment comprised by three sessions of education and 15 sessions of exercise therapy. And this was mainly chosen because the exercise therapy was delivered using gradual exercises. Therefore, we anticipated that we would need approximately 15 sessions to increase the functionality of the participants as good as possible, which left us with remaining three sessions of education. Sure. Still, I also have to emphasize that if the therapist felt that the three sessions of pain neuroscience education were insufficient to gain therapeutic alliance, the therapist was still allowed to use, for example, the fourth session to set things straight with the patient, to explain some things a bit further, and that the fifth session was used to start the exercises. And you're following up with this combined intervention, if I remember the article correctly. Yes, indeed, indeed. So the results in this study were only from the pain neuroscience education part because we repeated the questionnaires directly after pain neuroscience education, but within the complete trial, it did not end there. Participants just entered a physical exercise program, and we again repeated some outcome measures after this completion of the complete exercise program. I'll look forward to, to reading the results of, of your larger study. I think it's most interesting. I have one last question on your intervention. It's, okay. I was struck by the fact that you used what you call blended learning. It was a formal program of education 
but you included both online and face-to-face -face instruction, and you made reference to some of that earlier in our conversation. And you did it to be more cost-effective, which I mm -hmm. uh, completely understand. Do you think the blended nature of the intervention may have reduced the potency of the PNE? I indeed think that three one-on-one -on -one sessions between one therapist and one patient might have had a bigger effect on the outcome measures in this study because of the importance of individually tailored information. So in this study, during the group session, all subjects were able to shortly tell their story and the examples used in the session were actually based on what the subjects told. But still, in a one-on-one -on -one session, yeah, the, the therapist would be able to focus more on the specific needs and the specific case of the patient in, uh, in front of him. Also, the online session that we used here was a standard online course that was actually not adapted to the viewer. We tried to address that during the third session, which was actually a one-on-one -on -one session. So I, I indeed agree that if we would change it into three one-on-one -on -one sessions, the effect might have been bigger, but the rationale behind this approach was actually clinically based because in Belgium and also in other countries, we see that many therapists encounter difficulties to provide pain neuroscience education to their patients because of a lack of time. So with this study, we wanted to show that a different approach to PNE that is more time effective can also be effective in terms of changing outcomes. So this would probably enable clinicians to provide their patients with best evidence education and still not be a problem in terms of time, in terms of the, the clinical setting. I understand. and It makes perfect sense. Well, Dr. Malfleet, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk about your study. I really enjoyed both reading your article and in, uh, discussing it with you. Thank you for publishing it in uh, PTJ, and I'll look forward to reading the results of your ongoing work. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do this uh, podcast. I am also very grateful to have had this discussion with you because it gave me some more insights from some other perspectives. So it, it has been very learnable. And thank you for publishing my paper in physical therapy. I'm very happy with this opportunity.